I'm Christy Gupton, and I'm an Employee Benefits Advisor. Welcome to Healthcare Solutions, a podcast where we explore innovations in healthcare, cost containment strategies, and employee well-being. We'll discuss every way possible to turn our healthcare system back into the kind of environment where patient care comes first and costs go down as a result. I invite you to join me to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. In today's episode, we're talking with David Contorno, founder of ePowered Benefits. I've known David for many years and consider him a friend and in lots of ways, a mentor. Listen here as we highlight how a local government employer in upstate South Carolina finally said enough was enough to constantly increasing costs in a traditional health plan and made a change for the better. Okay, I'm Christy Gupton, and we're here today with David Contorno, a great friend and colleague and uh, my benefits idol. Thank you. It's quite an honor. (laughs) Well, I I wanted to just um, get, for the record and and for posterity's sake, um, some information to especially public sector uh, employers out there. Uh, counties, cities, large towns that have some options, but maybe not really know what their options are. I think there's a lot of confusion out there about some of the new innovations that they can pursue. Um, The people who are really profiting from the status quo are thumbs down on a lot of these new innovations because they're not able to um, maybe profit from them as much as they used to. And so I, I just think we need a real-life story, and I know uh, we have one, uh, and you're working with them, a, a fairly sizable county government in upstate South Carolina. Uh, how many employees are, are in this group? I think there's 1,016 employees enrolled on the medical plan, so it's probably 1,200, 1,400, somewhere in there. Yeah, a, a very good size, but... what Not was huge. It? Either. Sure. But bigger than some brokers might be used to working with. Sure. Um, but I think the important point is by the time we got to them, they were already somewhat frustrated. Mm-hmm. See if you can capture that for the audience in, in a description. Um, so, well, I mean, let's talk about the type of plan they were in. It was a fully insured plan um, through Blue Cross and Blue Shield of South Carolina that is an association plan of other government entities in the state. So there could be counties, there could be state employees, there could be city employees and other municipalities. And, and I, I guess the thinking was that if you bulk a bunch of people together, um, costs go down. And, and the, the, the premise, the reason that that premise is false is because what we need to lower the cost on is not the insurance. It's the actual cost of health care. And if you take a group of 10 people or a group of a million people, and both of those people are in a plan where the Blue Cross PPO network is attached to it, the dollars going out of the plan are identical between the two plans, regardless of the fact that one group's a million and one group's 10. So this notion that somehow grouping people together is going to lower the cost of health care is totally bogus. It might lower the cost of insurance, but let's talk about what we're actually talking about. Medical loss ratio provision of the Affordable Care Act dictates that the margin on insurance is maximum of 20%. So let's say that bulking people together saves 20%. It doesn't, but let's be optimistic. 
<laughs> it's 20% of the 20%, which is 4%. Right. Frankly, I can trip over 4% without even looking in the style of plans that I do. I can almost trip over 40%. Right. So the, the, the concept that bulking people together is going to lower insurance costs or buying across state lines is total bogus. It's right. not the cost of insurance that is our problem. It's a problem, but it's the result of the problem. The cause of the problem are these spiraling out of control healthcare costs, which are predominantly dictated by the PPO networks. Right. And remember, what is a PPO network? If you really boil it down, it's a contract, right? It's a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But it's a piece of paper that we can't see. Brokers can't see it. Employers can't see it. Patients can't see it. Doctors often don't even know what the heck it says, and they're the ones that signed it. But it's negotiated. It's a contract that sets all pricing, utilization terms, and everything between two entities, the doctor or hospital and the insurance company, Mm -hmm. in a backdoor secretive room between two entities, both of whom benefit as costs go up. Right. And we wonder why costs keep going up. Now, because there could be a whole host of listeners on this, let me clarify why insurance companies make more money as costs go up. Clearly, as doctors and hospitals get paid more money, they they make more money, right? So Mm -hmm. as their reimbursement rates go up, it's clear to see why they like rising costs. But a lot of people are under the false impression around how insurance companies make money, including people in the industry. The the scenario that I've thrown out there is, you know, since we're talking South Carolina, let's pretend that I run South Carolina for United Healthcare. And I'm getting ready to set my rates for 2019, right? Here we are in the fourth quarter of 2018, so they probably did this a few months ago. So uh, I imagine that the the person that runs South Carolina, whom I happen to know, He goes to his actuaries. I'm oversimplifying this, but he goes to his actuaries and say, hey, actuaries, over the course of 2019, what do we expect everybody on one of our plans to spend in medical and prescription costs? And let's pretend that they come back with a number of $800 million. So I set my premiums around the state to ensure that I bring in a billion dollars. That leaves me $200 million for my overhead and, of course, the profit that I must return to the mothership up in Minnesota so that they can deliver it to their shareholders, which, as a publicly traded company, is their number one responsibility. But let's say that for the first time that I've ever seen, United's cost containment strategies actually reduce costs. And instead of that $800 million that my actuaries predicted, the people in South Carolina, they only spend $600 million. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The question is... For me running United Healthcare in the state of South Carolina, does my profit go up as a result, go down as a result, or stay the same? And I will tell you that nearly every CFO and even people in the industry that I've asked this question of, they go, well, United makes more money, of course. They brought in a billion. They only spent $600 million, So now they have $400 million in margin. Not so anymore. Not so. The fact is, is that that $200 million plus the 20% margin tied to it must be returned to the people on the plan in the state of South Carolina. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't gotten any refund checks lately, so something tells me that that's not happening with any significance. Right. But if I bring down underlying medical costs, the loss ratio provision of the Affordable Care Act demands that I bring down premium. And if I bring down premium, I am inherently bringing down my profit. The only way for me to deliver more profit year after year to my shareholders, which if you look at all the publicly traded health insurance companies, they've been doing very well since this law passed, mm-hmm. is to grow membership and to allow underlying medical costs to continue to inflate. Those are the only two ways that I increase my profit on my health insurance division, period. Mm-hmm. 
So they've allowed these costs to continue to go out of control because it's to their benefit. So what employers need to start to do is think of their insurance ID card that they're handing to their employees as an American Express card. Right. That the insurance company's making a 4% VIG on every swipe. So they want as many swipes through there as possible. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to change. And so when you... I, you know, you used to know me back in the day as the United guy, right? <laughs> and now I'm kind of the reference-based pricing guy, which right. is, again, not accurate. Reference-based pricing is a payment methodology that allows us to remove the handcuffs of the PPO so that we can do all these other things that are not reference-based pricing that truly work. I actually think if the whole country went to reference-based pricing tomorrow, we would actually make the situation worse. Because all that reference-based pricing does is force, with a strong-arm tactic, lowering the unit cost. Healthcare systems, they don't like getting less money. So what they've shown that they've done, and, then, and, and this is documented, mm-hmm. is when something regulatory or in the industry forces unit costs down, then hospitals and doctors just bill for more units of care. And in a knee-jerk reaction, they try to fight against it. We're seeing that in North Carolina just this week, right? I read a news report that says that the, um, the legislature is now going to try to take the state health plan's authority away from the state treasurer because he, they want to go to the style because plan. in 2020 he wants reference-based pricing to be one of the cost containment you measures. You think Blue Cross is working behind the scenes to try you and make think? that happen? <laughs> you think? <laughs> um, and you know what's funny and, and really ironic, and I have no knowledge specifically that Blue Cross is behind that effort, but I would imagine they are. But let's not forget that Blue Cross just announced reference-based pricing, at least on certain services. So they're talking out of both sides of their tuchus. And what I think they want to do is they want to do reference-based pricing in such a limited capacity that all we have, you know, there are some inherent concerns or challenges with reference-based pricing. What they want to do, I believe, is inflate those concerns, do it in a narrow way that doesn't drive any real savings, and then say to everybody, look, we tried it. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Even though we've been doing it for years and we know it works. But again, it's not about reference-based pricing. So I know we're going to talk about a specific case study, and that's fine. But I want to just point out one other dynamic here. Please. The real customers of the insurance carriers are the doctors and hospitals, particularly the large hospital systems. Because let's face it, we being in the Charlotte area, there is not a single employer, not one, that could leave Blue Cross and would have a detrimental impact to Blue Cross's balance sheet. But if Novant left Blue Cross or Atrium left Blue Cross, every single employer in that market will leave Blue Cross. So they have to keep the doctors and hospitals happy. So one of the things that we do, as you know, is we create direct contracts with facilities. Those facilities that we know are outstanding in quality, incredibly high value and low cost and are willing to give a shared risk arrangement where if there's a complication or a mistake, that's on them. Mm-hmm. Now, those tend to be the independent, freestanding, specialty ambulatory surgical centers for the most part, at least when we're talking surgery. Right. They're not owned by the large health systems. They're usually owned by the doctors in the facility. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they're competing hardcore against Novants and Atriums. So let's say for a minute that Blue Cross starts to support these type of plans. And so they create a plan like I do that says, hey, if you go to that higher quality, lower cost place, your health plan is going to pay 100% of the cost. But if you go to the standard status quo players, then your normal deductibles and out-of-pocket supply. Sort of like what Walmart just did. Right. 
But how much is that going to piss off those status quo <laughs> hospital systems? And if one of them gets pissed off enough and says, gives the middle finger to Blue Cross, Blue Cross just shot themselves in the foot. Right. So they will not only does their financial model say if we lower costs, we lower profits. So why would we ever do that? But when you look at who their real customers are, they're going to start to piss off their customers, the hospital systems, if they start to embrace these style plans. So all of this, all of these dynamics are talking about are just these players desperately holding on to the the, the gravy train that they've had for so long. Mm -hmm. And it's the awareness and the education of employers like that municipality in South Carolina that's going to change it. So their frustration was certainly the standards, rising costs, and the only thing that the association or Blue Cross or their prior broker could bring to them as a solution was upping the deductibles and upping the out-of-pockets. Or some meaningless wellness program that was supposed to save the day, right? Yeah, of course. Um, so... Um, and I definitely felt that in the room when we met there. with them. Yeah. It wasn't a meeting where we were doing a ton of educating. They'd already done a little homework. They'd already listened to a few people. And they already had um, enough suspicion that there had to be a better way. Yep. And all we really had to do was tell them there was a better way. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> so uh, what happened after that? Well, so there were a few dynamics that went on. Um, you know, we don't really call our plans reference-based pricing, but at some point in the conversation, that term came up, and it triggered a little bit of a waterfall because th this, you know, somewhat rural county has one predominant health system in the county, and that health system owns the hospitals and a huge amount of the doctors and providers' offices. Well, a year or two ago, and I don't know all the details of this. I've heard what I'm about to replay from multiple sources. They all seem relatively consistent, but I wasn't directly involved. But there was a university in the county that went to reference-based pricing with a particular model of reference-based pricing that is, first of all, a low payment model to both the hospital and the doctor, very low, and secondly, unbending. And, and they have a reasonable approach. They say, listen, if we bend, then we might as well just up the level for everybody. We take a strong position and we defend the heck out of it, and that, that it, that's just the way it is. And I get that, and I've used it. But I find in uh, most circumstances that, that there's a softer way, um, a way we don't want to – we don't want hospitals and doctors to be losing money, but we also know, whether intentional or not, that they've been taking advantage of people, and we've got to stop that as well. So uh, anyway, this university went to that model of reference-based pricing that I described. To my knowledge, that was – they didn't do anything like the other things, direct primary care and bundled surgical and direct contracting, all the things that we've done for the county. And – uh, this one large health system really pushed back and started to deny service to patients. The universe, I don't, again, don't have all the details, but the university backtracked and went back to Blue Cross and Blue Shield. So that was the predecessor uh, in that county that I had to come up against. So um, we start to engage the county. We talk about how there's more proactive ways to approach it, how there's different models of reference-based pricing and how reference-based pricing is really the non-preferred approach for patients. Well, let's put it this way. Reference-based pricing in a vacuum isn't necessarily the best way to start. No, agreed. It's just the way that we get rid of the PPO. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is, is we set up um, two styles of plans. One is where you can go to any provider you want, and one is where you have to go through a direct primary care home model. In the one where you can go wherever you want, we basically said, listen, you can go anywhere you want, and you're, we're going to mirror your plan. You're current deductibles, your current co-pays, 
everything is going to be the same. So go wherever you want, go where you've gone, you're going to pay what you've always paid. Now we know that through proper medical management and of course the reference-based pricing methodology and better auditing of bills and a fiduciarily-minded TPA, we're going to save a ton of money in that space. But you know what we're not doing? We're not improving the ridiculously horrific outcomes that our healthcare system dishes out on a regular basis. Right. When you change the payment model to one in which instead of them making more money with screw-ups, they make less money with screw-ups, screw-ups happen less often. Imagine that. <laughs> the average inpatient complication results in an additional $10,000 of profit to the treating facility that caused the complication. Mm-hmm. So there's a not a very good incentive to do things differently in no. that model. Nope. So when we build our plans, we use the reference-based pricing as kind of the fallback. But we build out these direct contracts, and we have access to platforms publicly available, you know, platforms that you can buy into your plan that have four or 5,000 across the country, and we definitely embed those. But in the case of an employer where they're all located in one central market, we want to collaborate with that health system directly. So I called the health system. They were very adversarial at first. (laughs) And I basically said, look, here's the deal. Our plan, you got to understand the pressures of a hospital system. The first thing is they don't know where they make money and where they lose money. They don't know how much money they make. They don't know how much they charge. They don't know how much they earn. They don't know how much they have left over. Everything is done retrospectively. Okay. Hmm. It is pretty disorganized. And what we did is, is we went to this hospital. We said, look, We don't need a contract with you. We don't want a contract with you. The contract benefits you more than it benefits the county. Here's what I'm going to tell you. And luckily, I have been given very strong permission. The the county tried friendly to do it. And the hospital said, we won't do less than 220 in Medicare, 220% of Medicare. We won't do less than that. Of course, that was not acceptable to me. So I called the hospital. I said, listen, hospital, you can pick any level of Medicare you want. I'm going to leave it up to you. Here's the caveat. Here's the condition. We generally pay 150 of Medicare. That's our standard. If you ask for 150 of Medicare, standard out-of-pockets will apply. If you're at least 20% below that, then we will allow members to go to you with no out-of-pocket. Now, that is a really attractive thing because these doctors and hospitals are writing off more and more and more bad debt every single day as these deductibles and out-of-pockets go up. These are insured people. They're not writing off bad debt for uninsured. Those usually have government programs tied to them. They're writing off bad debt of insured more than anything else. And there was just a story in USA Today that I posted yesterday on LinkedIn about a mother whose child needed some sort of organ transplant, I forget what kind, up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm -hmm. They found the donor, matched it up, everything was ready to go, but they said that they will not do the do the surgery without proof that she can cover her deductible. And because she couldn't prove it, they sent her a letter telling her that her child wasn't getting the surgery, wasn't getting the organ, and that they suggest that she find fundraising efforts to raise her deductible so that they can be assured that she's going to be able to pay that. Oh, so everyone says, what happens when you go to a doctor with no network and they don't take your plan? Well, what happens when you go to a doctor with a network and they refuse you anyway? And they refuse your, your to deliver the care that you thought they were contracted to deliver. And let's not forget, they're going to get hundreds of, of thousands. thousands of dollars okay. on top of that 4500 So anyway, we're negotiating with this hospital and we say, look, 150 of Medicare standard out-of-pocket supply. 20% below that will waive all out-of-pockets. The members will be able to go to you with no copay, no deductible, nothing. Now, normally they, they see that as an opportunity to abuse the plan, but we know that we have proper medical management involved that's going to prevent that. 
And I said, but if you want the 220 or really anything above 150, then we're going to write out all of your services. The only service that we're going to write in the plan that is specifically covered is emergency room. And you can't say no to that because you're a nonprofit system and you have to follow EMTALA because of your emergency departments. But for emergency care at your facility, we're going to jack up the out-of-pockets to the absolute maximum dollar amount allowed under the Affordable Care Act so that you write off a minimum of $7,350 on every single emergency room visit, which you're already losing money on to begin with. You let me know what level of Medicare. uh, Sending notices and invoices for no employee in that county is going to pay $7,350, which I don't want them to. I'm not I'm not expecting them to. That's the whole point. So anyway, they came back to the table, and let's just say we haven't inked the deal yet, but we're getting close, and it looks like we're operating at a level in which the out-of-pockets will be completely waived for the members. So, you know, at the end of the day, their market share is important to them. And yeah, I mean, having this be a little bit of a larger employer in the county was certainly helpful, but I'll tell you what, we called a couple of hundred employee group we were working on up in Massachusetts, and they wanted to make sure that this one doctor group would take it. We called the doctor group CFO and they said, oh my God, we've been lining up to do this. We will have, like doctors and hospitals hate insurance companies too. It's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> they hate them too. Uh-huh. I don't know if your people are aware of this, but doctors are the number one suicide rate of any profession in the United States. It's very sad. The number two leading cause of death of male physicians is suicide. The number two cause of death among male physicians is suicide. And the largest reason that they cite is they're sick and tired of being told what to do by hospital administrators and insurance companies that's contrary to the interests of the patient. I mean, if you think about all they went through just in the schooling part and and then the cost that they incurred to get to that point and now an insurance company is telling me what I can and cannot do? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about disenchantment. Yeah. That would, yeah, it would lead me to consider (laughs) is it all worth it or not? Um, Especially... In, in our society, when we expect doctors um, to be the most wealthy in our communities yeah. and send their kids to private schools and, you know, the have anymore. the country club memberships and all that. And so if you intend to live up to that expectation, um, you could be going backwards rather than forwards. I actually would argue the better of a clinician you are the less money you should expect to make in our current system. And it should be the exact opposite. No, that is really messed up, isn't it? It is really messed up. The more time you spend with your patient, the less money you make. As a matter of fact, you might even lose your job because if you don't see 30 or 40 patients a day or whatever the hospital system that bought you demands so you can feed the rest of their system. Or refer enough. Refer out, you're going you're gonna to lose, lose your job. That is you're gonna sick. You're going to lose your job. So... Um, so with this county, and let me tell you what has been amazing about this particular county, and this is, I think, one of the more heartwarming pieces of this so far. So many local providers, like physical therapy providers, durable medical equipment providers, have come forward and say, guys, we've been beat down by the large systems and the large carriers. We want to help them. And do you know, for those types of services, we're getting Medicare or even lower rates for the county. So when we get that type of pricing, we take all the BS out of the way that the providers hate dealing with. So we make a lower amount of money, more profitable for them. And and a faster payment model. Faster payment model, less hassles, less prior auth and all the crap that insurance companies do that they claim they're doing for the benefit of the patient. But we know really they're doing it for the benefit of them. We're supporting local businesses. We're supporting local taxes. We're supporting local employment. We're giving employees access to those providers with all out-of-pockets waived because they gave us such a good price for the plan. 
I don't understand how everybody is not doing this constantly. <laughs> it's, Me either. It is so rewarding. And when you, you know, what's the number one thing that you think employers want from brokers? To lower healthcare costs, right? Well, tell me how many brokers out there, they know a lot about insurance and they know how to jockey around the insurance costs, but I don't know of many. I mean, literally on one hand that are actually getting involved in negotiating down the cost of healthcare. You've heard me say there's only one way to pay less for healthcare. You have to pay less for healthcare. You're never ever going to lower costs by negotiating the insurance. That would be like expecting your car payment to go down by switching from Geico to Allstate. Your car payment doesn't change when you switch from Geico to Allstate, <laughs> right. right? Nor does it start to operate better or right. break down less. You need to or... <laughs> change the underlying payment model. How right. is that car being paid for? That's what needs to change, and not how is the insurance And you get a better deal on that car paying cash up front, that's right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's another notion is that insurance saves money. I challenge anybody who's listening to this. Do the next time you go to the doctor, show your ID card and say, how much is this going to cost me and my health plan with this? And how much would that same service be if I just wanted to pay you right now? Well, they're cash? not even allowed to tell you that, are no, they? No, but you can ask. You yeah. may not get an answer. They may right. say, I don't know either answer, which is, again, back to my point that these doctors and hospitals have no idea what they're getting until they get it. Right. Which is one reason reference-based pricing works so well, relatively speaking, is because doctors don't know what they're At supposed to get. At least it's the devil you know, That's right? That's right. They're getting the same EOB. They're getting the same information, the same payer ID. You know, it's all the same. It's just there's no logo. That's the only difference. Tell me about uh, what happened since this South Carolina County made this decision, which it couldn't have been easy. No. But they, they, um, they made the decision, and you moved forward with educating employees. What kind of response did you get back? Certainly some trepidation, um, but... You know, at the end of the day, we, we really highlighted the benefits that we were bringing immediately, which was we improve some things. And, of course, we give everyone that option for most services to be done at no out-of-pocket cost. Which was a drastic change for the employees. That had to open their eyes. It was certainly a huge carrot that got them intrigued. Um, you know, I think one of the underlying fundamental problems of thinking that we have in this country is that we intermingle the words health care and health insurance. And we think that if we're changing our health insurance, we're also changing our health care. But again, back to my car analogy, that would be like expecting that you switch from Geico to Allstate and all of a sudden you're going to get better gas mileage. Your health care doesn't change. You're still going to the same doctor. Do you think the doctor gives you a different, a different advice because you showed a different ID card five minutes ago to the person up front? Well, maybe if the doctor ends up getting paid more and faster and with, that, with less hassle, you'll maybe, take priority you, yeah, maybe of, you do yeah. get a, a better outcome. We'll yeah. see. That, that remains to be seen, but I think we have lots of hopeful expectation that we're going to see. Uh, dynamics in the actual delivery of care change because yeah. doctors actually are going to start being paid what they're worth. Yep. So I think the other really important thing to note here is there was a county that's been very public um, just over the South Carolina border in North Carolina called Union County. And uh, Mark Watson um, is the person that runs the plan for the county. And he embedded direct primary care a couple of years ago. Right. Nothing more than that. So he basically said to employees, so why, what is direct primary care? Well, I think to understand what direct primary care is, we need to understand why our current primary care system is so dysfunctional. If you go back about 20 years, you probably saw that even your own primary care doctor was independent doctor. It was owned by that doctor that you were seeing. Maybe there were a couple other doctors in the partnership, but that's who owned it. And 
The problem with that is that they were local, small, independent. And as the insurance companies started to jockey around reimbursement levels so that they can maintain market share, they said, where can we push down? You know, we, we need to preferent we need to give preferential treatment to some of our larger provider systems, but for these small ones, we can beat them up. So they started to push down the reimbursement rates. And if you're a, a primary care doctor and 40% of your patients are coming from Blue Cross and Blue Cross says, we're paying you less or you can leave the network, you don't have much of a choice, right? Because right? 40% of your patients are coming from Blue Cross. So you agree to the lower reimbursement level, right? Well, guess what doesn't go down? Your rent. Your costs. Yeah, right? your payroll, your malpractice insurance. So what's the only thing that you can do? You have to see more patients and or bill for more services with each patient. And so this mad rush of quantity started to occur. Well, a bunch of years later, these poor primary care doctors were losing money. As a matter of fact, the average primary care office is losing about $100,000 to $150,000 a year per MD on staff. So they're feeling this massive pain. Well, in steps the hospital system and says, hey, doctor, hey, we're going to take all this away from you. We're going to integrate your billing into our billing office. We're going to deal with the insurance companies for you. you. We're going to give you better leverage against the insurance companies. We're going to pay you a salary. And they're like, that sounds amazing. Right. I'll do it. (laughs) So they do it. Well, then the health system comes in and says, you know, we kind of forgot to mention, but one of the things we expect from you is to feed the rest of our system where we do make money. Mm -hmm. So as a result, they put metrics on that doctor. It might be you have to see 40 patients a day. It might be they have to refer out for 20 surgical consults to an orthopedist. Well, the problem with a surgical consult to an orthopedist, we'd like to think that orthopedic surgery is only done when orthopedic surgery is absolutely necessary, but the data shows that the exact opposite is true. We know that the most likely outcome of what you're going to have done when you go see an orthopedic surgeon is surgery. Right. The old hammer and nail analogy. So right off the bat, they are dramatically increasing the likelihood of you having surgery, not the need for surgery, the likelihood of surgery, which of course is very profitable for the hospital systems. And it's exactly what they want. They want better utilization of their MRI machines and surgical operating theaters and, and so on. So They became, the primary care doctors, what they wound up getting themselves into, unbeknownst to them at the time, I would imagine, is feeding the rest of the healthcare system to make sure that it stays profitable. And again, not what they intended to be. So now they're not only a slave to the insurance company, still, but now the entire hospital system as well. And so that made primary care completely devalued and just pushed people out. Doctors hate it. It's probably the, the specialty we need the most as a country. Even though we spend more on healthcare than any other country, we spend less as a percentage of those dollars on primary care than almost any other country, certainly any other well-performing country. So uh, what needs to happen is the payment model to primary care doctors needs to change. It needs to be off of this quantity, volume-based payment model. Mm -hmm. And what it should be, I believe, is a capitated model where you pay a monthly fee for that patient, whether that patient comes in or not. Mm -hmm. You give the doctor a nice level source of revenue with a much smaller patient panel size, which allows him or her to spend more time with each patient, do more diagnosing, which is really what a primary care physician's job is. They're a diagnostician. And they're supposed to be the ones that treat all the minor and even some of the moderate things and only send you to a specialist when it is truly necessary. And even then, stay engaged in the care treatment path so that there's another clinician who knows you better, who knows you more holistically, most likely, 
that is monitoring what that other doctor is doing and conferring with them to make sure that it's the right course of treatment. And when you do that, not only do you find patients going to specialists less often, but you dramatically reduce surgical procedures, radiology, specialty medications, Mm -hmm. um, even significant reductions in opioid usage. Um, And so it is really just a, a really fantastic model. Okay, let's talk about the enrollment process and what you saw in response from employees to the direct primary care piece, because I think that's really interesting. So with the direct primary care model, what we did is is we found a local primary care facility. Um, it's Dr. Shane Purcell and Amy Ciansolo. I think I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> um, great, I mean, salt of the earth doctors. They live in that county. They know that county. They know the people. They already have patients that are county employees. And what we did is is we built a plan option that says, if you choose this plan option, Mr. and Mrs. Employee, um, you're going to have the best benefits you've ever had. The only quote-unquote downside, I I really think it's an upside, but, you know, perception, is this is your new primary care doctor. And you can't go to a specialist without going through your direct primary care doctor. But if you go to this doctor, and by the way, some of the employees of the doctor are the spouses of employees of the county. So there's a lot of credibility there. There's a lot of comfort factor. But if you choose this plan option, not only will you have zero coming out of your paycheck, but you'll have zero coming out of your pocket for all your primary care doctor visits, all your specialist visits, and all of your procedures that your primary care doctor coordinates for you. And you don't owe another dime when you walk in the door, as opposed to what we're used to, paying a $50 copay every time you walk in the door, which leads to an avoidance of care. Right. And so the doctors, they don't need to, at least the primary care office, they don't bill a single claim. They get paid a monthly fee for every employee that chose that plan, regardless of that employee coming in six times a week or once every other year. They can spend all that extra time on patient care, no paperwork. Follow up, follow through, have cell phone and text messaging capabilities with the patients so they can hold them accountable to changing their diet to fix their diabetes or monitoring their blood sugar or whatever it may be. I mean, the quality of care, mainly because the doctor has more time with the patient is so significant. Surgeries go down, specialty medications go down, uh, and the, 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 the patient experience is so much better. I myself ututilize a direct primary care, not a concierge. Now, let's say between the two. There is a lot of confusion two. out there, there is. isn't there? I think that. what a patient expects from a concierge doctor is probably in line with what a patient expects from a direct primary care doctor. The difference between the two is that concierge doctors charge a really high fee and still bill insurance. A direct primary care doctor charges a very reasonable fee and never, ever bills insurance. So when we embed this style of plan into, uh, or when we embed direct primary care into a properly functioning plan, um, the quality of care goes up, the costs go down significantly. And most importantly, those patients are not just tossed out on their own like they are now by the large carriers. They literally have a clinician as a partner as they go through whatever treatment they need. Pregnancy, cancer, whatever. Sounds like preferential treatment to me. (laughs) You know, it it really is. It really is. Well, I think what um, I'm really excited to to hear next, and, and we'll definitely have to have a sequel in a few months, but what I, I want to hear next is how much under the, the benchmark that you inherited all of these strategies brings their costs under. Yep. 
So um, do those numbers for us and let us know when we can come back and hear the results. I will. I will tell you that what we're seeing on average is around a 40 to 45% reduction in total costs for the employer at the end of year one. At least that's our average. We've done better in some cases. The worst we've ever done has been a 24% reduction with this style plan. And at the same time, we are immediately improving benefits, not reducing benefits. And then typically the employer won't allow me to start to lower the employee contributions until the following year when we've actually locked in some of those savings. Sure, you've got some reserves in place. Well, and I'll tell you, I think that the the one thing that our industry has done a really, really, really good job at for decade after decade after decade is a whole ton of false promises. And one of the biggest things that I have to overcome is the fact that, well, the United guy told me that if I put these this wellness program in, my rates will go down, but it didn't. And the Blue Cross guy told me that if I put in an HSA, it'll lower my cost, but it didn't. And you know, the other guy said if I use their wellness tool or their cost transparency tool that my members will get lower cost care, but that didn't work. So, I mean, just think of the years, right? We went from no network back in the day to narrow networks. And mm-hmm. let's talk about that for a second because that's another really dysfunctional piece. The, the premise of a network back 40 years ago was that if we take select high-quality doctors and we steer patients to them, so we increase their volume of patients, they're going to give us a greater reduction in fees because we're steering volume to them. Right. Right? Well, what's the number one thing the large carriers tout? Their big network. We have 97% of all doctors in our network. How much freaking efficiency are you achieving when 97% of all doctors are in your network? Well, it's not special. No. Uh, the, the smaller network was more efficient for a reason. That's right. But now that all the doctors are in all the networks... What, what efficiency? You're not. You're increasing costs with the network. You are not decreasing costs. Now, I know everyone gets that EOB that says the network saved them 60%, but it's 60% that's net already inflated off of an even more inflated number. And the analogy I always use is for anyone that shops at Kohl's, would you ever buy something at Kohl's that wasn't on sale? Right. But you know, (laughs) even with the sale price, even with your scratch off for another 30% off, and then even with the Kohl's cash that you earned from your last purchase, you know they're still making a profit, right? They're a publicly traded company. They're not going to go without a profit. The same thing is true in these PPO pricing. All that they do is sell on their discount, but there's such an easy way to get a bigger discount. Just raise the starting price. That's what's happened over the last 20 years. And we are able to access financials on hospitals because most hospitals are nonprofit and they have to publicly disclose their tax returns. And if you pull that data, what you'll find is over the last 20 years, the amount of billed charges that they're charging, so that inflated starting price, has gone up exponentially. But the actual dollar amounts that they're getting is much more in line with inflation, the increase in that. Right. Because all that they're doing is they're colluding with the insurance companies to allow them to market to the market a bigger discount. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not a lower net price. It's just a bigger discount. Right. Okay. So uh, do you care how much of a discount you get or do you care how much you pay for something? I care how much money I keep in my pocket. There you go. (laughs) There you go. But if I told you that a shirt was 60% off of $20 over here... Or 0% off of $3 over there. Which one would you prefer? Exactly. I want the $3 That's shirt. Right. Especially if it's the same Same one. shirt. <laughs> or even better quality at the $3. Right. So uh, people need to start to wake up to this. And, and employers have plenty of intelligence and resources if they ask the right questions. they got to stop trusting insurance carriers to a higher level than they trust American Express. I'm not saying distrust them more. But imagine if you got your American Express bill for all your company's corporate credit cards, and all American Express said was, please pay us 123342 bucks." 
with no line items. Did your employee stay at a Ritz-Carlton or a, a Red Roof Inn? Right. Did they get a Bentley with a driver or did they rent a Prius? Mm-hmm. You need to see that and verify that and validate that because you can control it then. You can measure it. Right. With these PPO networks, they completely take that control away from you. You don't they have only, a receipt to no, check. <laughs> you can't check anything. And yeah. all they're saying is keep paying us more and more and more and we're going to keep giving you less and less and less. And we allow them to do it. It doesn't have to be this way. Yes. As a worst case scenario, a 24% reduction under the benchmark as opposed to an 8% trend increase every year. Yeah. I think I'll take the savings yes. over yes. I mean, listen, the status quo. If we expect insurance companies to lower healthcare costs, do I need to give you any more data than what you, every employer has experienced and every employee has experienced at least nine years out of 10 for the last 40 years? No. Right? I mean, they have, if, if we expect them to lower healthcare costs, they have failed, right? Because healthcare costs are not lower. No. They're higher. And they're higher, higher, inflating at a rate beyond everything else. At what point are we going to stop expecting that? You know what we should expect the carriers to do is return a great profit for their shareholders. That's their number one goal, just like every single publicly traded company out there. And that's fine. I'm not in any way faulting them for that. I'm faulting the employers for, tr- for, for presuming them to be more altruistic or not even some understanding something as simple as their revenue model to determine what questions should I be asking, where should I be looking. Right. They do it with everything else they consume. In exchange for something as, I want to say fake, I shouldn't say it, but in exchange for something as fake as a provider network, Mm -hmm. where the only direction they give their employees is a big booklet with all the providers' names and addresses and phone numbers in them. And the employee is supposed to figure all that out? Know where to go. You know, do you know that, I forget the exact percentage, so I don't even want to quote it um, in any sort of recorded manner, but the percentage of doctors within a network that are board certified is shockingly low. Like, their goal is not to get high-quality doctors. And I can tell you, I know lots of doctors that are part of networks, and I've asked every single doctor this question. Has any carrier that you're contracted with ever asked you for any data whatsoever on the quality of work that you perform? No, why would they care about that? No, they don't. Not a single carrier has asked a single doctor, how well do you do what you do? They don't care about that. Employers aren't saying... Do you have good doctors in your network? They're saying, do you have all doctors and in that, your network? And that is what networks were intended to be. They were. Like, we were only going to have the, the good doctors, so this is how we were going to control costs. But the demand for every doctor in the network, or we're not going to go with you, ha- happened so many times over the decades. Now we have these overblown networks that are identical from carrier to carrier. Yeah, I mean, imagine if I said, well, um, to my employer, well, I'm, I'm not staying at a Marriott. I'm only going to stay at over at Carlton. You know, you better allow me to stay at a Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> but so why do employers feel the need that they have to say yes when someone says, essentially, I want to go to a high-cost, low-quality doctor and your health plan better pay for me to do it? Why does an employer feel obligated to, to say yes to, to when they, they're not going to say yes to you can stay at a Ritz-Carlton on, on my dime? You know, they, this, it, it's this passive administration by the employers their trust of the insurance carriers, their trust of their brokers, who, by the way, also make more money as sure. costs go up, um, that's what that's what causes dysfunction. timid nature when you're just talking about health care as opposed to, you know, utility costs or, you know, any, any other kind of costs that they have to grapple with on their spreadsheets. 
Um, I, I would say when you're just talking about costs, uh, healthcare would be delivered at a, in a more efficient way with uh, higher levels of quality if you would pay more attention to the cost. That's right. So, yep. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks, David. Um, Thank you. We'll come back and talk uh, in a few months when we've got some data to look at. Great. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining our important discussion as we attempt to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Please subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think. For more information on the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at www.custombenefits.work.